Welcome to Book to Where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, Booked has taken a break from reviewing books again because we just get lazy sometimes. That's a lot of books to read, isn't it? It, yeah, adds up. You know, it's funny. Before I get this, I was reading online. I saw a list. Blake Butler, who we talked about during the Warmed and Bound sessions, um, had his list of books he read this year. So not only that guy read like 150 books this year, which is, I don't know, like umpteen times more than we did or more than we did. But would you like to know how many books we had in common with his list? Um, one, two, zero. I have never in my life read a book that he read this year. Any, <laughs> any of them. Yeah. So, but so it's kind of a little aside there. But man, 150. Can you imagine if we read 150 books a year? Um, that would be annoying. Yeah. I mean, for the podcast, what are we going to wind up at? We're going to wind up like 40 for the year. Yeah, right? I think like 30, 35. Yeah. Okay. So at any rate, so we're not going to do 150, but um, we did take a break this week just to make sure we don't put up Blake Butler numbers. And what we're going to do instead is not talk to one, not talk to two, but talk to three different writers all in one episode. Yeah. How many authors as Blake Butler interviewed for a book review podcast this year? Hmm. You know what? You're probably right. We should ask him. Let's ask him. All right, we're gonna have to. We'll get back to you in an upcoming episode about that. That answer. Yeah. <laughs> like just opening his email. <laughs> his email. And he's like, "The hell is this from?" Yeah. It just says in all capital letters, "How many authors have you interviewed for a book podcast <laughs> episode?" What the hell is this? And what we're like, this? the answer is, yeah. "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you remember back in July we did this, and it was so much fun. We had on Pelavia, Nikki Gerlane, and Todd Brown. And uh, we had an absolute blast. So uh, these tend to be a little shorter than our normal interviews, um, which means we don't ramble on quite as much. We actually just let the authors talk. Um, but it was a lot of fun. So we thought we'd do it again. Good way right. to kind of end off the year or get to the end of the year, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, either we're being lazy and we don't want to read books in December because there's so much stuff going on. Or it's just a fun way to round off the year. Yeah. I think I like that second option better. Yeah. You want to tell folks about our first guest? Our first guest is going to be uh, Fred Venturini. Here's a little bit about him. Uh, he grew up in Pakota, Illinois, where he survived being lit on fire by a bully, uh, a neck-breaking car accident, and being chewed up by a pit bull. His fiction has appeared in places like River Sticks, The Death Panel, Sick Things, Johnny America, and Necrotic Tissue. And he is a two-time Chuck Palahniuk anthology finalist. He lives in southern Illinois with his beautiful wife, Chrissy. Uh, the Samaritan is his first novel. Now, um, in addition to his book, Samaritan, he kind of appeared on our radar a little bit because he was in the second noir at the bar anthology with his story, Low Man, which we mentioned, I believe, on our review of Noir at the Bar 2. We did. Hey, you know, in, in hearing that author bio, I see it says he survived, you know, all these different things. Do you think this guy's going to bring a lot of energy, or do you think he's just like, like done? <laughs> just beat down. Like, <laughs> life has chewed him up and spit him out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to ask him about that. I think he's uh, he's probably going to. He seems energetic. He seems like he's a, kind of an athletic dude, from what I've seen. Yeah, I don't know. That could be. Well, we're going to find out. Can I share something with you? Sure. I actually survived being attacked by a dog when I was like two years old. <laughs> so me and Venturini are like brothers. I was just going to say, I once ran from dogs and wound up there like loose, crazy dogs in the neighborhood. And uh, I fended uh, them off with my car door. 
Ooh, a card. <laughs> yeah, I got in my car. <laughs> and I was like, well, now I'm behind this big piece of steel, so I could, like, jam at them. But, yeah, they were, like, trying to climb up the side of the car. Like that scene in Cujo. Um, yeah, but it's different when they're Pomeranians. <laughs> See, I was two years old, and a dog actually had my entire head in its mouth. Oh, my um, God. That's why there's nice scars on my cheek and then on my forehead and stuff like that. No one's ever noticed. Oh, they will now. <laughs> All right, maybe we should bring out a guest. Hey, Fred, thanks so much for taking some time to come on and talk to us here at Booked. My pleasure. All right, so Rob and I were joking a little bit when we were reading your author bio. <laughs> it says you you survived a variety of things, and we were kind of concerned you'd come on and sound like you're beaten down you know, in life, <laughs> and you don't, you don't come off that way at all. How did all that crazy stuff happen, and how does that? How did you become a writer from that instead of some type of daredevil? Well, you know, uh, it's a combination of bad luck and good luck, I guess. Because like when you've been on fire, everybody says, <laughs> "Wow, you are so lucky that you survived." But at the same token, then you got twenty-five, thirty percent of your body kind of scarred up. You don't feel very lucky at the time. So, and then when you stack that on top of even the things I didn't put in there, uh, the car accidents. I know I got the, I think I got the dog attack in there. Mm-hmm. Just just all part of making an interesting bio because I really didn't know. I don't want to be one of those uninteresting bio people, you know. So I figured that's a good thing to put in there. And I guess how that relates to writing is when you've been through those things and you start kind of getting into writing separately, eventually they're going to merge. Because when you've actually like been on fire, <laughs> you got to get that in a story. You got you to get that down. Because, you know, there are probably a huge amount of people out there that know exactly what it's like to be on fire and have all those other weird things happening to you. So uh, even though I whittled down the stuntman resume for the sake of the bio, there's definitely a convergence of the two, the writing and having just weird shit happening to you. (laughs) A couple things occurred to me while you were saying that. You're right, though. It's, you know, yeah, you're you're so lucky you're alive. But, yeah, I don't. I've never really thought about how unlucky you had to be to be in the position to be lucky to be alive, if that makes sense. I've never yeah, really looked at yeah. it from the flip side of that because you're right. People are like, oh, he's so lucky. Well, no, not really because he was yeah, on fire. You don't feel lucky at the time. That's for sure. So. <laughs> my other thought was about your bio. Rob, Rob is a huge critic of bios. That's his side job is he just reads author bios and cuts them to pieces. Um, oh, wow. And, 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 he's uh, exaggerating, but... <laughs> I, Rob, I, wrote a, Rob wrote an article about what it was called Why Your Author Bio Sucks. So, Rob, what do you think of this author bio? It's actually quite nice. It's concise. Um, it tells you a little bit about the author without going on. All right. So, like, yeah, I had some objections about author bios where usually it's like there's this touching moment in the childhood that, you know, it's the moment I can remember vividly made me want to be a writer. And then there's like a list of, you know, every possible thing you've had. Like, you know, once I had a letter to the editor published in a local, you know, newspaper, like anything where your words appeared somewhere and like, you just on and on. So, uh, reading them all the time for the podcast, I just got so tired of it. And I kind of wrote a ranting article about it. You know what? I recall seeing that article as a matter of fact. <laughs> so, and you know, the whole reason I saw it is cause I didn't know if my bio sucked and I wanted to read this article <laughs> just to make sure that my bio didn't oh. suck under those criteria. And I think if I remember correctly, I walked away from that article thinking, I think I'm all right. So <laughs> no, I like know. it. So <laughs> I'm going to be the most. I'm going to be the most notorious just for for criticizing people's author bios now. Well, that's a great angle. But, you know, one of the most fun <laughs> things about that bio is when it gets read before you walk up for a reading. That mm-hmm. that's always a moment for me when you have some people there and they kind of hear you read, and then whoever's introducing you reads the bio. There's always this weird reaction where they don't know if they should kind of chuckle or <laughs> who the hell's going to walk up here. 
what, what's going on? So you got to go up there. And it's a good way to kind of uh, break the ice. So it, it, in a live reading, it definitely works that way. Wow, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you had your book, The Samaritan, come out earlier this year. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what it is? Uh, well, here's the thing with The Samaritan. And this is a, it's, I think it's kind of a unique situation. Because Blank Slate Press actually put the book together and they wanted it. I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And I guess if you're going to say official publication, February of 2010, maybe, where it was originally published by them. And then what happened was it just had these legs to it and just gained a little bit of momentum until I started getting calls uh, from agencies. So uh, I actually had William Morris Endeavor, Kirby Kim at WME, call me up. And all we worked on, it seemed, in 2012 was me kind of getting away from Blank Slate Press and having the rights to that work so that we can maybe expand the audience for that particular book. So technically right now, if you guys are going to like, uh, do you want to pimp your novel? I don't think there's many places you can get it because as part of the agreement was it's kind of pulled off the shelves. You really can't get a hold of it right now. But I'm actively kind of retweaking it, rewiring it, reworking it, talking with my agent about it, and hopefully it's going to see it's kind of a weird thing. A regenerated version might get out there to a you know a wider audience, maybe a bigger press, things like that. Not that I'm not working on other projects parallel to that, but yeah. Whenever people ask me what's going on with the Samaritan, it's a long answer as you can tell. So <laughs> it, it's just a weird kind of situation there. But it's always cool to say, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with WME and we're kind of shopping that book right now. So that's kind of where it is right now, being reshopped. Oh, excellent. But in its original incarnation, did win awards. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. It. Uh, I think my favorite one was I got a Kraken rum T-shirt and shower curtain. <laughs> that was for the uh, the Golden Tentacle Award. So all I wanted was my bottle of rum there, and they couldn't ship the rum from. I think they were in Europe somewhere. So they sent me a shower curtain and a T-shirt. <laughs> I got to keep the T-shirt. My wife wouldn't let me keep the shower curtain. So. I gave it to my friend down the street. He's got a little bachelor pad. So whenever I visit, I get to see my shower curtain over there. So that's <laughs> the spoils of writing right there. Wow. That's when you know you've made it, that you can visit your friend and uh, see the shower curtain you won. Yeah, and I can't take a leak over there without saying, hey, how you guys liking this shower curtain, huh? <laughs> and yeah, you look up the MSRP. It's like a $70 shower curtain. They're like, we've got to get rid of this shower curtain. Fred never <laughs> shuts up about it. <laughs> so. Wow. Oh, so we have a pretty good mix of small authors and kind of bigger authors. So how is how have things changed for you without you being the guy who's got to shop that book around? I mean, having someone represent you, how does that differ for you as a writer? Well, I would say the biggest difference is it feels a lot more like a profession and less like a hobby. When you feel like, you know, like with an agent or blank slate press, that somebody's livelihood sort of depends on taking work like yours and packaging it up and getting it out there. I mean, they eat on that bread. So it feels more like a profession, more like a responsibility, you know, more like something I really got to sit down and get after this. Whereas before it was kind of like, you know, if I want to play some Call of Duty, I'm just not going to write that thing tonight. Now there's a lot more of an emphasis on it. And it just has kind of automatically created a more professional approach to it, which is a good thing. I mean, and it's kind of backwards for me because I think a lot of people had the professional approach in order to get, you know, a press or an agent, whereas I was just kind of a very, uh, I did not have a very tight writing schedule. 
I'm very haphazard that way and just kind of stumbled into it. So in that way, I'm really, really lucky that I found something that created that professionalism instead of having to impose that discipline upon myself to get there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But even before uh, signing with his agency, it seems like uh, Blank Slate Press was treating you pretty nicely, too. We briefly met Christina. McCann, is it McKenzie? Yeah, Christy, yeah. Yeah, down in uh, when we were at Noir at the Bar in St. Louis. Right, she right, was, awesome. She was very, very enthusiastic about your book and everything, and, and it seemed like, you know, even with a smaller press, that's an that's an impressive amount of, like, uh, energy to be put behind you. Uh, it's unbelievable, to tell you the truth. You know, it, it. I was actually one of their first authors. I was actually their very first book. So there was definitely, when I was weighing that particular offer, I was like, because you hear the horror stories about certain small presses, you don't know what's going to go on. But when I met her, and you know, I met Jamie and Jason, everybody who's involved in that operation, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go with it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to sit there and uh, hold out for something bigger or better, because they were actually approaching me while this book was incomplete, and that's sort of what makes them unique. I mean, they approach it like a penny stock almost. Uh, so. <laughs> I gave them the pitch. I told them what I had done. And they're like, we want, we want you on a contract right now. We want this novel. And me knowing what kind of writer I was, I said, you know what? This will be good for me. This will force the manuscript out of me sooner rather than later. You know, kind of a, you sign your soul away to get your self-imposed deadline there. And then just time and time and time again, whenever I thought that they should do something to support the book, they were doing it. They were coming up with great suggestions, outside-the-box ideas. They've been there since day one. And even though I'm like not officially with the Blank Slate Press bandwagon anymore, we've got dissolved our little agreement as I moved on to uh, get represented by another agency there. The relationship is still great. She's over in St. Louis. I talk to her. I email her. I urge any author to give their work to Blank Slate Press. I think they're going to give you your money's worth. You're going to get a great job. You're going to get support. Got nothing but great things to say about Blank Slate Press. That's very awesome. Yeah, very different from what we typically hear, which I've been shopping this book around to every <laughs> press in the world for the last three years. And finally, someone said, if I edit out half of it, you know, they'll take it. So it's uh, it's good to know that it can it can work the other way around, too. So that's really cool to hear. Speaking of Noir at the Bar, Rob mentioned, how did you get involved with, with Jed and Scott? I, I would say it's peripherally through... Uh, Christy and Blank Slate Press, because when she started her operation in, in St. Louis, it was only natural that uh, she would kind of hook up her wagon with those guys a little bit. And they were just talking to me one day and said, hey, we're doing an art at the bar reading. Grab an offensive story. Come on over. And it was probably <laughs> the most fun live reading that I've ever been to. I've never been in a reading where another author was like heckling me as I was reading and all this other stuff. I mean, there was all kinds of shit going down at that particular reading. I will never forget it. <laughs> yeah, we're big fans of uh, Jed and Scott and Noir at the Bar. They're just like on top of like just having like, you, you know, like kind of a rowdy, fun, like no holds barred kind of approach to, to a reading. Like, yeah, you nice, know, and you nice got to do that. You got to do that because like the guys that I work with and hang out with, they're not like reader types. So, when I'm going to like a reading or something, they, they hear reading and they're like, oh my God, it's like a lecture. Oh, I don't want any part of that. But a noir at the bar reading, that's something I can get them into. First of all, bar is right in the name. <laughs> so you know that there's going to be a bar involved somehow. You know, if not an actual bar, alcohol. 
I said, that's number one. A lot of people who don't really go to readings and are outside of literary circles or are just casual readers, I don't think they realize how much fun readings actually are. Mm-hmm. So I don't you know, think they realize guys, how much writers drink. <laughs> exactly. That too. That too. Holy smokes. I mean, I like to have a beer or two, but there is a few I'm like, really? Holy crap. So you actually mentioned something that I saw on your website that like I, I had that moment of connection with you when I read it on your website. That was very made me very happy. And you said something along the lines of you can connect with readers, but you can't make your non reading friends into readers. Exactly. And, I'll have uh, to. We we've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half now, and I've had to explain to countless people what we do on the podcast, and you know the closest people in my life and everything, and you know they'll support me to the end, but there's no way they're ever going to listen to it because it's not something they're interested in, and it's just like I totally connected with what you were saying when you said that. Yeah, that might have been one of the, you know just to field test this. One of the things I struggle with is uh, character names. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I think a lot of writers kind of struggle with them. I really sift through them. But anyway, one of my friends has a pretty cool last name. And I, I said, this fits perfect for this character in The Samaritan. So I'm just going to plug it in there. <laughs> and he's one of my non-reading friends. And it just goes to show you, you can tell the guy, and I have you know some friends who did read it because I'm their friend, and it's the only book they've read in a year. They'll say, dude, there's a character named after you in the book. Guy still won't read it. Still won't read it. When's the movie coming out? That's, yeah. Oh, no. You know? Wow. So and there's a lot of people like that. So. Yeah. Yep. Um, you also talk a little bit on your website about it being important for authors to be connected to their audience um, via social media. Why Why do you think that is? Or do you think that's any different than it was previously? I mean, obviously, social media hasn't been around for that long. But how has that changed the dynamic between the author and the reader? Well, I'll go a step further and say that it's it's bigger than social, you know, just social media. And I'm not a, probably not the right person to seriously endorse that because when I'm working, I'm not, you know, doing my Facebook posts. I'm not on Twitter that much. I'm not updating my blog as much. I always feel like that's time that I'm cheating on my other projects, you know, because I got I got what I feel like is three pretty big parallel projects. And I'm trying to finish up. So whenever I sit down at that desk. You know, I can't really hit the Facebook statuses like I know I want to. Now, when I was actively promoting and engaging with everybody, I was on there a lot more often. But I'm talking about at the readings, you get to talk to people, which is so great. Mm-hmm. You know, making sure that anybody who wants their book signed, that you talk to them a little bit. And that's something that uh, I think one of the first big authors that I was in awe of that did that was Chuck Palahniuk. Mm-hmm. Line out the door. He didn't care how long he was there. He was talking a little bit to every single person. And I thought that was great. You know, that was a moment for me. So even though I'm not Chuck, whenever someone's in the line or we're talking or we're standing by the bar, I always make sure to talk to them as much as possible, learn about them a little bit. So even if it's not just social media, just connecting with your audience just in general, I think is really, really important. I fully agree with that. And um, in our experience, uh, we meet most of our, the writers, authors, um, that we talk to just online and that can be like enough of a good experience, but we've had the occasions, you know, through conventions and readings and stuff to actually meet some of the people that we'd had, you know, a purely like kind of electronical relationship with um, in person and spend time with them in person. And and it's just, it's totally different. It's it's so much more, um, you know, of a connection. There's more value kind of transferred between the parties. So I, I full, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, and you know, around here I had a standard thing. If you are a librarian or you are a teacher, 
just call me. I, w- I would love to go and do whatever you want me to do. I mean, when you guys say, hey, let's do an interview, great, let's do an interview. I just, I'm, I'm at a point right now, I'm not Stephen King. There's no reason for me to say no to anything. Interviews are awesome. This is stuff that I dreamed about when I was a teenager, writing stupid little stories. You know what I mean? So I just try and enjoy it. I just try and engage with people as much as possible when it concerns my writing and, and you know stuff along that line. Very nice. So you mentioned a little bit that you're working on some projects, and we know that you're you're going back and revisiting the Samaritan a little bit. Um, is there? Do you want to talk about anything else that you're currently working on? Well, you know, I just got off the phone earlier this week uh, with a few people about my new manuscript, and it's sort of an apocalyptic love story type of a deal. And that's one of those story ideas that I had kind of sat on for a long time because I was kind of afraid of it. And it's the basic premise would be four horsemen of the apocalypse. One of them falls in love with a chick, so has to fight the other three to kind of stop the end of the world, you know, which kind of sounds like a Michael Bay flick. But once I started (laughs) writing it, uh, you know, the front end of it, it was kind of like the Samaritan. The front end of it was very human to me. I started to discover a lot about the characters. The middle was a real joy to read. But that third act, I kind of had to cross a line that I don't normally cross by, in my writing. And that's where you're kind of jumping from right on the fringe into like a, almost a supernatural third act. So I'm going to go through and I might end up doing, I'm not going to call it a page one rewrite, but there's going to be a lot of work that I'm excited to do on that particular project. So it's always fun to mess around with the apocalypse, you know? I mean, holy yeah. smokes. Can't, can't beat it. Dude, that premise sounds incredible. <laughs> Just wanted to get that out there. I sounded like a little fanboy, but that sounds awesome. Yeah, well, hey, I appreciate it. Like I said, that's one of those things. Stephen King said it best. I don't keep a writer's like notebook. I like to think about stuff before I go to bed. And I, as much as I'm a fan of Stephen King, I only heard him say this the other day. I don't... He didn't say it the other day. He said it sometime, but it was the first time I had encountered it. Let's put it that way. But he doesn't write stuff in a notebook because the best stuff stays in your head. And that's one of those things that has always been swimming up there for the longest time. And yeah, I'll jot down, oh, maybe this is something from the book of Revelation because maybe this is a little plot point. And I'll kind of develop it a little bit. But it's always there, and then you're ready to jump in. So it really pleases me to hear you say that it's at least an exciting premise. You know, it gets oh, yeah. me excited to go back in there and get after it. Mm-hmm. Hey, this just occurred to me. Um, we uh, were talking about the Samaritan and some other uh, novel-sized projects you're working on. We know you're at Noir at the Bar, and then in your in your uh, bio, there's a couple other places. How how do you feel about short stories? Is that something that you like to do, or is something you just kind of dip your toe in? You know, short stories, I had that big, I think every writer kind of has that, but they had that big rush of short stories. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think when it occurs, or at least this is the case for me, is when you start to make that leap as a writer, you know? So, you know, let's say I'm a teenager and I'm dabbling, and the short stories are fun because they don't take forever. They're not a huge time commitment. Uh, you can get all your cool ideas down. But once I started my MFA program and you have peers that are going to be reading your work and you're starting to learn to edit your own work. For some reason, the fan, the, the flames just started getting fanned. And I just started blowing through all my short story ideas, pumping out a lot of short stories. And then after that, I started chopping them and placing a bunch of them. But I probably haven't touched a short story in, in a while now. And once again, sometimes I feel like 
I'm cheating on the bigger projects with the smaller ones. <laughs> so once I, I have these three big projects I want to get done, and I'd sure like to get back to it because it's a fun form because you can write it in one sitting, you know, and you can just polish that stone until it just absolutely gleams. You can rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. So it's kind of fun in that way. We've been, um, it's a conversation we've been having with people we've been interviewing recently because, um, you know, it, it seems like that that's kind of a trend as well. Like once you, once you dive into, and the other thing is like Matthew McBride, we talked to the other day, he kind of made a good point. There's really not a lot of money in publishing short stories. So oh, like, that too. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a viable like future, you, you know, like it's probably, you know, fun to do or like, like you said, but in, it, when it comes down to it, probably novels are going to be. <laughs> at least money wise the better choice unless yeah, unless you're I, I unless you're putting a lot of stuff in deer and deer hunting magazine <laughs> you know i was just going to say that i publish a lot of uh auto detailing articles they pay far better than it, all my short stories put together <laughs> <laughs> trust yep, me yeah. all the freelance stuff <laughs> just blows your short story out of the water the short up, story up and coming writers it. take heed this is <laughs> yeah get with the magazines right. that's where you're going to get paid wow yeah. Um, Fred, where can people find you and your stuff online? Uh, FredVenturini.com. V-E-N-T-U-R-I-N-I. I will update it one of these days. <laughs> I'm going to get after it. Uh, I guess when it comes to content, I'm just one of those guys. I'm just not in the habit of hitting it every single day. I try to come up with one little gem of an idea, you know, that sort of thing. So Twitter, at Fred Venturini. Facebook, just type in Fred Venturini. I'm all over the place. So willing to talk to anybody about anything. Love this stuff. So get out there, get after it. We'll have a conversation. Thanks for your time tonight, Fred. No problem, guys. I certainly appreciate it. All right. Once again, huge thanks to Fred Venturini for coming on. Glad we got to, to, to get him on finally. Dude, he's telling us he's like, so the, like the apocalypse, the four horsemen, one of them falls in love with the woman. I'm like, all right, all right. And he's like, and he has to fight the other three. And I'm like, this is brilliant <laughs> genius. Like, yep. like, I, I kept wanting to interrupt to tell him how great it was. He was talking and I'm sitting here kind of like, I, I got to tell him that this is awesome. Yeah, I was feeling the same thing in my mind. I'm like, one of the four horsemen falls in love, sold. And then he just kept going. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, when the Samaritan comes back out, we're gonna have to review that on the show. When anything comes out by him, I think we're gonna review. I, yeah, it. yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, if you guys want to find more information about him, like he said, check out FredVenturini.com. We'll have a link to it on the post for this episode. Um, if you can scrounge up a copy of the Samaritan, we highly recommend you do so. Also, check out the other places he's been published, like uh, North Bar Two, some of the other uh, publications that we've mentioned. Uh, in his bio all right our next uh guest this evening uh, is also someone who's come up on the show numerous times um and we just never had a chance to really connect and do this so um jandon hale god not only did we talk to the guy a lot we spent like a week with him in in, in los angeles we did I've, I've seen the man shirtless um multiple <laughs> occasions <laughs> i don't know if that's exactly what we needed to talk about but you know, I get right down to it was an intimate. It was an intimate week with uh, with this man. So, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think the fact that we haven't been able to do anything with him yet might have something to do with the fact that he has kind of a busy schedule. You think? Hey, you know, though he does have and own the only video, um, like of the two of us, that was broadcast anywhere that wasn't related to booked. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, interesting. So. 
At any rate, a little bit about our next guest. Jandon Hale is the author of Everwind, a dark post-apocalyptic sci-fi series of stories that take place on a dying world wrought with plague, war, famine, and widespread infertility. He lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and divides his time between writing, art, and inappropriately themed tarot card readings. I'm going to add to that list uh, graphic novels. Uh, there's uh, TV, series. TV, TV series on the web, um, and God only knows what else. He's probably got a children's book in the works. Yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll maybe we'll just ask the man himself. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for coming on and talk to us on Booked. It seems like uh, we should have done this a long time ago. Yeah, uh, I've just been waiting. Um, I wanted to get you guys some more material to work with, so it's th- this last one was kind of a pain in the ass, uh, and it took longer. So it's good to be here finally. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I'm currently finishing up Snow Leaf, which is the third installment in the Everwind subchapters, which I'm sure we're going to talk quite a bit about. But uh, you want to start by telling our listeners a little bit about the world it takes place in? Yeah, what I wanted to do was... Uh, it's, it's kind of I, – I like to explain it as if you take a uh, Middle-earth setting with all the magic and crap um, and get rid of the magic and then progress towards modern-day times and then go beyond that to the end of the world, the post-apocalyptic times. So it's kind of technology has peaked and the world is going back towards the Dark Ages, so there's still a little bit of technology there, but – uh, everything is hard to sustain, so it's kind of like a mix of Mad Max and Lord of the Rings without the magic, if that makes sense. Um, makes perfect sense to me because I'm I'm quite enjoying them. Um, one of the things I actually was going to mention that I really liked in this in this third one, you know, you talk about kind of kings and queens, like Regency has returned to kind of a post-apocalyptic Earth, which I think is is kind of cool, especially when you explain it as you know today the apocalypse and kind of like you know or kind of like the downfall of technology and us reverting back to things that we used to do hundreds and you know thousands of years a thousand years ago so i think it's kind of a very cool touch cool yeah that's that's kind of what i was going for um and and two the other thing that i haven't really had a chance to get into is that after if for people who don't know um about eight years prior to uh the events that take place in these books the subchapters, there was a huge plague that wiped out like 60% of the population. And uh, what's happening now, or what's about to happen, is uh, a lot of these monarchies are starting to fall in favor of uh, essentially communism and capitalism. Um, so that's the, the one thing that these, the monarchies are struggling for power because the people are starting to get pissed off with them. Um, and I haven't gotten into that yet, but that's another thing that's going on as far as the political climate. Uh, <laughs> one thing that's, that's very obvious if you, if, um, if you see some of your web presence like on uh, Facebook and stuff is that it's not just that you're writing stories or subchapters of, of a larger story. You're really creating a larger experience with um, like news reports and, and a bunch of other, you know, things that you're creating that, that you're putting out in different mediums. Uh, How, (laughs) it seems like it's going to take a lot of time to do that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, it, it, it really does, but I like it because um, it's not just the writing. Everyone knows, every writer will tell you how painful it is to write just the stories. And I, I like to take breaks in between writing and um, do the fun stuff. So for fantasy and sci-fi writers, they have this thing called world building that they spend too much time on instead of writing, and, and it's like the fun stuff. So what I like to do uh, is create these extra things. Um, and to, what you referred to specifically was the official website called uh, com. And what it is is uh, I basically just made a fake newspaper website. But the the, the cool part is that the, the newspaper is from the stories and everything on that website is in character, so to speak. So... I like to do that in between the stories to to maintain um, momentum, and because everybody that's a fan of any serialized thing, they have to wait so long in between releases. And I like to do this stuff to keep people involved and give them something in the meantime. Yeah, it's a nice touch. It, it's really tough, especially when you you know I picked up on series when they're three or four books in, and you devour three novels. And then you have to wait a year for the next one. So I completely understand what you're saying. And it's a very nice touch. And it's some very, very cool stuff from, you know, emblem designs. And, and you know, there was a, like an overball um, schedule, like put together for teams that play a fictional sport. And stuff. I mean, a lot of that is just really, really cool. Really cool stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that part, too. <laughs> and is it an unintended or intended consequence that some of these news stories fool people into thinking that there are things that happen or you know, like actual real life. Uh, that's intentional. Um, <laughs> I, I like to take, I kind of took a page out of the, uh, the onion book where I try to make these, the headlines at least, um, seem realistic so that when I post them, there's a chance that people will share it thinking it's real. <laughs> and, and it's just like a marketing technique, I think. So I've seen it several times with the stuff you post where I'm like, Hmm, what's this? And then I see people freaking out, you know, in comments about it and stuff. And I'm thinking, I think that has to do with, you know, I don't know if that's actually happening. Right. Yeah. The best one, the very first um, article I posted was, and it's a reference to Outrider, which hasn't come out yet, but um, it's a, it's a, it's a, a news story about a guy who disemboweled a traveler so that he could eat his last meal from the stomach contents. Yes. <laughs> And uh, people thought that was real. <laughs> well, in, in a world of homeless guys on bath salts, like eating other people's faces, it's not that far-fetched, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, so we've heard there's probably a larger Everwin novel in the works. How are these sub-chapters going to relate to that? Uh, well... The subchapters actually came after I started working on um, the first book, which is going to be called Outrider. And uh, what I wanted to do, because in Outrider, um, you mentioned this on the last time uh, we kind of talked a little bit. Mm -hmm. The facility is the first subchapter, and it takes place exactly one day before um, the opening of Outrider. So uh, the subchapters are kind of, they work in reverse chronological order. So all of those events kind of lead up to the events in, in this first book. And uh, the first book, 
will continue to uh, to go in chronological order. So um, basically the first book is going to be the real primer on the whole universe and all the events that are really happening at the time period. So um, I really look forward to getting that one out there. Unless you wanted to talk a little bit more about the Everwind uh, world, that's really not the only thing you have going on because we could talk a little bit about proxy influence too, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about it's a web series um, that you're you're the main writer on, right? You created it. Yeah, I, I uh, well, I'm I'm a co-creator, um, Dustin Carpenter, who if if you know from Manarchy, we both uh, created Manarchy as well. And then we started this web TV series, and it got to be um, so work intensive that we couldn't work on Manarchy. So that's that's another story. But uh, we got down together, and um, he went to film school a long time ago, and I knew that he hadn't done anything in in like several years. So I said um, we need to make something, and we kind of got together and we started this web TV series. And we both took turns. We we take turns writing the scripts. So I wrote 12 episodes and he wrote 12 episodes. And uh, I also act in it. Uh, he wanted me to be one of the characters. And I actually play Livius. <laughs> um, I created that name because I think it's a cool name. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad we didn't have to prod you for that. Rob goes, you're going to ask him about the main character's name, right? Said, uh, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, no, I th- I thought Livius is a cool name because I wanted to make um, in in the web series. Basically, it's about two warring factions of demigods that um, basically their energies determine their type of personality. So we have chaotic demigods and orderly demigods, and the way they battle each other is uh, they have to influence humans. So the chaotic people, you know, they try to spread chaos, and the orderly people try to maintain order and structure and all this stuff so it's it's really cool because um half of the episodes my half that uh they cover the chaotic side and my focus for all the chaotic episodes is based on how they interact with humans and the type of strategies they use whereas uh the other half of the episodes that cover the orderly side they're more talking about the focus of theirs is the supernatural elements and more of like the, uh, the rule sets and, and how it all works. So I think it's really cool because we go back and forth and, uh, it gives everybody a a chance to really get involved in, um, just the, the lore of the whole series. It's going to be, it's really cool. It's, it's very interesting. Um, so as a web series, where do you hope this would go? I mean, we talk to writers all the time, and obviously, you know, the New York Times bestseller list is is you know the the top of the pile. Where where do you think you want to go with the with the web series? What is your best case scenario for this? Uh, well, right now we just we just want to uh, get a large viewership. So we're posting we're posting it up on YouTube, Vimeo, and Blip TV. And basically, we are trying to hopefully get it up on Hulu. And then uh, we, we just want to attract uh, industry professionals. So basically, it's going to be kind of like our business card to get our foot in the door with the uh, film industry. So 
as far as the show itself, we're not really concerned with, you know, getting it picked up by a network or anything. We just want to get our names out there and hopefully, uh, so that people recognize, like if, if, I don't know, Rob Reiner or Thomas told the owner of legendary pictures thinks, Hey, I need somebody who can make something really cheap. Oh yeah. What about those proxy IX guys? You know, that's kind of our goal. Um, how much acting experience did you have going into this? I had absolutely none. <laughs> it was a challenge. Uh, I, I've done some comedy stuff, just sketch comedy on, on YouTube and everything. That was about the extent of it. And almost all of our actors that we picked, we actually uh, ran everybody through a lot of screen tests first. Um, minus a couple of people that I'm still disappointed in. But uh, anyway, we, Everybody seems to have picked it up really well. And we do have some, I call them heavy hitters. They're actually people with IMDb credits. <laughs> like one of our guys, LeBrandon Sheed, he recently starred in a movie called Stealing Las Vegas with Eric Roberts. <laughs> and so he's our, like, our biggest name actor on the series. <laughs> the name that goes on the marquee, right? Right. I will have to say that that's a... That proxy influence is a much much cooler resume so to speak than pretty much anything else i've seen and it's it's kind of a great idea to to get your your name out there yeah and that's uh, the other reason why we wanted to do it is because uh i started film school and i, I one of the things that really kind of got on my nerves was before i joined i'm going to full sale online and i looked up all the reviews and everybody was pissed off they all the students were mad at full sale because they got this degree and then and then they couldn't get a job in the film industry. And what I told Dustin, I said, dude, all these people are trying to they're relying on everybody else to give them a job when they know how to make a movie. So why don't they just make a movie that rocks and get noticed anyways? And and that's kind of our strategy. So rather than, you know, going to Hollywood and, and working our asses off trying to get people to put us in their stuff we're just making our own thing and trying to make it the best that we can and we think that's a, a better strategy i would have to agree um, lots of waiters and waitresses in la that are taking the other route so i think that uh, this is probably a much smarter way to go <laughs> <laughs> between proxy influence and the everwind series you've created two pretty you know creative worlds do you find that writing how do I say this? Writing without rules, so you're making up your own rules for these for these stories. Is that easier, or do you think it's harder than setting a story that's you know hardcore today in your hometown where you have to play by you know the world's rules? Yeah, in 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 many ways, it's a lot more difficult. Um, like with the sci-fi, the world, the everyone series, um, I couldn't just dive in and start writing because uh, the advantage that a lot of writers who use the real world they have is um like you have different things that everybody recognizes so i if i need a vehicle i can just say okay he drives a dodge ram and it all the work there is already created for you whereas with sci-fi world you have nothing um all the places you have to create uh all the everything they use is created by you. So you have to basically, you have nothing to work with. Uh, and that's, that's the hard part, but it's also the fun part. Um, the other issue, 
this is a big thing that a lot of sci-fi and fantasy writers if you if you read like a lot of the blogs on how to do it how to start writing this they really caution against people um in fact terry brooks wrote a book called sometimes the magic works and the main focus of his book if you don't know he wrote the uh, shinar series he says that all the magic and everything else has to have rules so um basically a lot of sci-fi and fantasy writers think that they can just dive in and and make everything up and and it'll work but uh, it has to be believable and it has to have limitations. And that's the other part that a lot of new people don't realize. Um, which there, there, and, and there are other genres that you can, you can jump into that don't have limitations such as bizarro, um, <laughs> which is interesting in itself. But for, for the most part, sci-fi and fantasy have to have rules and, and you have to think about that. So, um, Basically, anytime you come up with anything new that doesn't apply in the real world, you still have to kind of debate amongst yourself. You have to tell yourself, why is this? Why? Why does this work? And you have to be able to answer that in some way. So you don't you don't like to take the easy stuff, it seems like. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it. Well, I, I kind of dove into the Everwind series because I wanted something that I could build upon um, forever. So it's kind of like a living thing. Whereas uh, writers that write series stuff, after a while they're done. The series is over and they move on to something else. But I wanted something that I could just add on to for however long I wanted to, you know? Yeah, I guess that's the difference. Like if you create like uh, a character and you have a series of books with that character, the, the series depends on that character and it lives and dies w- with that character. But if you create a world, you can have different characters in different situations pretty much uh, endlessly. Yeah, basically. And, and the, an, another thing that I like about the Everyone series, um, the, the whole world itself is kind of the main character, you know? Um, that's kind of why I created it that way. So, that yeah, that's what I was planning on when I went that route. So what is the next thing we're going to see as a part of Everwind? Hopefully, I, I, I want to try to do some short films to kind of supplement that because I know everybody loves films and it's easier for somebody to watch a, you know, 10 or a 20-minute video than it is to jump in and start reading books uh the only drawback is that i have to create costumes and settings and stuff Uh, (laughs) yeah that was my first thought was was wow yeah i I, yeah (laughs) it's it'd be tough but no you're right obviously the market for for video is you know oh i don't know about a thousand times larger than the market for readers yeah, and uh, the other thing I'm doing, I'm I'm kind of working on it on the side right now is I'm trying to create some games um, that that use the uh, Everwind universe. So I have a board game that I'm working on, and I might do a card game as well. So those are those are some other things I'm working on um, for the series. So shifting gears a little bit to a little less serious question, um, you want to tell us a little bit about how you keep running into Stephen Baldwin at the airport? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a weird story. Um, well the, 
you guys were both in LA when uh when I went out there um <laughs> this summer. Well, the the summer prior to that, I went out to the uh, Warmed and Bound release party in LA, and it was uh so I went out there and we spent I spent a week there and I didn't run into any celebrity at all um the whole week and then as I was leaving I was at the airport and uh Stephen Baldwin pulls up I was outside smoking a cigarette I think he pulls up to the sidewalk and he's dropping somebody off and uh I I was like that's that's Stephen Baldwin and I I had to google his tattoos to confirm it <laughs> but it, it turns out it was him and then, uh, you know, then so a year later, I went back to L.A., same exact thing, um, summertime, we spent a week there, didn't see a single celebrity, and um, this was right after the Aurora shooting, so on my way back, I was at Denver uh, International Airport, and I'm just walking around, and I look in this store, and I see <laughs> who I think to be Stephen Baldwin standing there. <laughs> the cowboy hat on and i'm like that is him because i recognize it <laughs> so the second time i go to la i wait a whole week and i don't see any celebrities except for the airport so i see stephen baldwin twice and uh at this time i was like man i have to to talk to him because this is unreal so i kind of like followed him around the airport a little bit <laughs> stalked him somewhat and he got in line to Panda Express, and uh, I was kind of standing there debating on how I was going to do this. And these three women um, sat down. He had dropped his luggage off at this table, and they sat down at that table. And I said, hey, just so you guys know. And see, nobody else recognized him at all. So I, I told these three women, I was like, hey, just so you know, that stuff right there belongs to Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> and um, and they got all excited. <laughs> They waited. We waited for him to get through the line. They asked him if they could get pictures with him, and I, and I offered to take the pictures. And and so he goes, "Yeah, give me a second. There's actually a process to this." And uh, he kind of told them to keep their excitement down, basically, so that we didn't attract any uh, a whole mob. And we went around. He found a place that had no people, and uh, I took everybody's picture. And then I got I got my picture with him, and I told him and. He didn't really think it was that cool of a story. <laughs> so, and that was the last time I saw him. So. Oh, so he's not somewhere telling people how, you know, hey, I ran into Jandon Hale <laughs> twice at the airport. Yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah, in a few yeah. <laughs> He'll, yeah, he'll retroactively make it a cool story when you're big and famous, when you're bigger mm -hmm. than, bigger than Stephen Baldwin. Right. Doesn't take much nowadays. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, I went there. All right, so with so much going on, are there any other projects you have in the works? Yes, actually, uh, <laughs> kind of a big one. Um, I'm doing the graphic design. I'm doing all the uh, artwork. Um, Phil Jordan, he wrote a kind of a comedy noir detective story called Klondike, and uh, I'm doing the art. He's turning it into a graphic novel, so uh, that's one thing I'm working on as well. And it's going to be pretty cool if I can pull it off. He's he's excited every time I send him pictures, but uh, for me, it's that's the most challenging thing I've ever done. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Because I've never done a graphic novel before. <laughs> well, with all this free time on your hands in between everything else, I mean, why not, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I just think it's a cool a cool project, and uh, Phil's an awesome dude, 
and it was between me and another guy and the other guy couldn't do it so uh and and to be honest with you when he asked me i was like uh i was i was kind of debating on whether or not to tell him no as well because because i wasn't ready for something like that but then i just said you know what i'll do it and I'll, i'll figure out how to do it so you have way too much energy. There are days where I'm like, uh, I don't even think I can read a couple pages of this book. Like that's yeah. yeah. So that's you've got way too much stuff going on. <laughs> I know. But I like to I like to uh, bounce back and forth between everything. So I'll work a little bit on one and a little bit on another. And as long as I'm doing a little bit on all the projects, then I don't feel bad. Uh, it's kind of like a savings account for each one of those projects. Eventually, I'll be able to cash out. You know. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Well, hey, why don't you tell uh, our listeners where they can find information about all of your crazy projects you got going on? Yeah, um, the 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 biggest way is uh, to find me on Facebook. Um, just look up Jandon Daniel Hale. Uh, I have the EverwinTimes.com website, which I'm gonna start transferring all my info. Like I'm gonna make that the the hub. So that's basically the other place you can find everything is EverwinTimes.com. Very cool. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before we let you go? No, I, I guess um, the Proxy Influence, the first pilot episode is out. If you go to blip.tv slash proxyix, uh, you can watch that for free. And the the rest of the episodes we're going to hopefully release in January on a weekly basis. So, Very cool. If that's embeddable, we'll do it in the, uh, the post for this podcast. Otherwise, we'll drop links for everything uh, in the post as well. Yeah, it you should be able to embed it. If not, um, you can. I think you can find it on YouTube or Vimeo as well. Very cool, Dan. Thanks for taking the time to come on and talk to us here at Book this evening. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. I, I've been waiting for this forever. All right. Once again, big thanks to Mister Jandon Daniel Hale, aka Dan Donchi, for coming on and talking to us about all of the crazy, crazy, intense, and involved things that he's been working on. It's so funny because I mean, he just he really creates these like kind of vast worlds, you know, like we talked about and it's, it's just, it's really, really cool. Like I'm always very impressed to see what else he comes up with that's supplemental material to the Everwind series. The weird thing too is like, you know, we mentioned earlier that we spent a week hanging out with him and a bunch of other people in LA you get that guy just in a regular conversation where you're not talking about projects. This is like everything he does is like this, you know, like, He's got ideas about everything. His mind just seems like it never shuts off. Very true. So um, do him and yourselves a favor. Each one of the Everwind subchapters is available for only 99 cents at Amazon. Go pick them up. Three bucks. It's good stuff. That's right. And um, as far as the stuff we mentioned earlier when we were talking to him, like the uh, proxy influence, uh, uh, the the pilot episode and, and other stuff, lots of other stuff that we mentioned, we'll do our best to have as much as we can in the post for this episode. If we can't embed stuff, we'll just drop links to it. All right, and the time has come to bring on our third and final guest uh, today. And no disrespect to the other two guests that we had, but I have to say that this is probably our most anticipated guest. How long have we been talking about this guy now? Um, Over, I mean, over a year, probably since, uh, what, just before Halloween of last year, right? Yeah, yeah. Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters, probably Mm -hmm. our most fun episode ever. And it was all kind of uh, uh, spotlighted on, on Craig Wallwork's terrific short story. That's right. Yeah, it's been we've been talking about him a lot over the last year, and uh, we reviewed Quintessence of Dust. Um, he's popped up in 
he was in Warmed and Bound, so I, we probably have been talking about oh, it ever since. Oh, you know what? You're right. Uh, yeah, with that crazy story about the guy and the insurance scam and the kid and the video camera and stuff. So, yeah. oh, and you know what? We probably owe to Craig a, a thanks for uh, putting us in touch with Todd Brown. That's how we uh, developed our relationship with May December too. That's right. That's right. He, yeah, <laughs> he is. He's responsible for that. So if anybody's mad that that happened. Uh, <laughs> You can blame Craig Wallwork. <laughs> Send your mail right across the pond. <laughs> Craig, right, so, Craig Wallwork. I'm yes, sorry, Craig, Craig Wallwork. Um, we'll, uh, we've, I think we've said enough about the man. Let's see what Malaz Corbier has to say about him. Warning. The next part of the booked episode will contain an unhealthy amount of Britishness. It is advised to remove children and pregnant women from the room. The English folk are peculiar, which shows in many, many ways. Such as darts on telly, Law stating it's not allowed to hit your wife with a stick wider than your own thumb, brown sauce, cricket. If you were to pile up all those peculiar things, you'd find Craig Woolwork on top of it. You have been warned. Second warning. Rob and Livius will mispronounce Craig's name all day long. You'd better ignore those tits. I am Les Corbier and I approve of these warnings. Alright, that was Malaz warning you about some... I want to say that he had originally sent us... (laughs) A file that just talked to, he just did the first part. He didn't go on to do a second warning about us. And it was this huge internal debate at the podcast whether we were going to post the second one that he sent us or just post the first one and make a big deal about how he didn't say anything bad about us. And uh, good guys that we are, we just decided literally this very second to post the full second uh, audio clip that Milan sent us. You know, I mean, let's give the guy a pass. He's out of practice of sending us stuff. It's true. So, yeah, it took him a little. It took him like a full twenty-four hours to realize he didn't say anything condescending about me, you, <laughs> the podcast. The quality of the clip is very good too. So I got to give him that. He sounds good. He's probably been working on it for months and months. Yeah. So that was Malaz. Uh, and before we actually bring Craig on, Craig, we got to get used to saying Craig. The moment we get him off, you know, we're done with him and everything. It's back to Craig, but I, I'm going to try and be as Craig as possible for this. Uh, here's his author bio that we pulled from his website. Craig Wahlberg lives in West Yorkshire, England. He is the author of the short story collection Quintessence of Dust, which we reviewed on Booked, uh, and the novels To Die Upon a Kiss and The Sound of Loneliness. His fiction appears in various anthologies, journals, and magazines. He is the fiction editor at Menacing Hedge Magazine. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, we reviewed his story, Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters, from Midnight Movie Creature Feature back uh, last year. And we reviewed uh, his collection of short stories, Quintessence of Dust, earlier in this year as well. Craig, this has been a long time coming. Thanks for taking the time to come on and talk to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Hey, uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but we uh, we, we had set time to, to make this call and everything, and... and uh, we called like a, a few times, and and it seemed like the line was engaged. You still working out that whole uh, um, busy, you know, call waiting situation over there? Yeah, yeah, we we've not embraced that technology yet. <laughs> we still got coconut shies and string. <laughs> it, right. In some ways, in some ways, I think it's great because you know, every time I'm on the phone, someone else tries to call, and like you know, like Luther says, if you leave your phone on, someone's just going to call you. So, oh wow. Luther. Luther. Oh, I'm sorry. I was <laughs> Luther. It's actually it's a BBC show. Luther with uh, Idris Elba. No. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like my Excellent. favorite TV show. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I okay. just sort of 
yeah, I didn't know what it was. So to start off, you want to tell us, you have two two books coming out at the same time. Now, we know writers who, who are dying to get something published, and you have two coming out in the in the very near future. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about those upcoming releases? Uh, yeah. I, d- I didn't really know that they'd both come out at the same time, especially the same month. I assumed that there would be a break between the two. I think the, f- the first one, uh, To Die Upon a Kiss, was scheduled to be released in summer this year. Um, and that got put back for several reasons. And I knew I had a date coming for uh, The Sound of Loneliness in January. So I thought that'd be a nice break. You know, you'd sort of six months. Then, uh, due to circumstance and everything else, they all sort of landed at the same time. So I'm going to be a busy man in January. But yeah, the, 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 the books. Um, the Sound of Loneliness, that's going to be released by Perfect Edge Books in January, uh, January 25th. And that's about a writer um, living in uh, England in the early 90s. He's um, he's basically living in poverty. Uh, he's reduced his life to very little in the hope that to uh, suffer for his art, he'll create this great masterpiece. Um, the only problem is he's a terrible writer and he's not, not you know, he can't actually, uh, He's only written one story, and that's unpublished. So uh, is he sort of embittered by the world? He's a bit of a misogynist, and um, he doesn't really understand why nobody's sort of getting him. So through the process of the novel, he ends up looking after his dying uncle with throat cancer, who, again, is embittered by the world. And so their two lives are running in parallel, and he sees a lot of himself in his uncle. Um, what changes it, the catalyst to this change, is this young girl of about 14 or 15 years old. And she comes into their lives and sort of changes them. Daniel, who's the main protagonist and the writer, he falls in love with this girl. Um, not on a physical level, just that she changes his life and adds reason to him, sort of well, adds reason to his uh, his writing. So what he does is he realizes nothing can come from it. There's, there's nothing, because he, he considers himself a monster for actually feeling this way towards it. So he wants to move out of the town and live a normal life. Um, and that's essentially, yeah, it's, it's him coming to terms with this love of this young girl that he can't really have and trying to be a great writer. Although it's, it sounds quite a serious, serious book because it deals with loneliness and depression um, and various other things like that. It's actually quite a funny, funny novel. So I wanted to try and write it as a sort of like, a, you know, like sort of anecdotal where if you're in a situation at the time and the incident is quite serious, you, you, you kind of get through it and, you, you know, you sort of wipe your brow. And then when you're regaling friends later on, you tend to pull out all the humour and you make it something something a bit more lighthearted. And that's essentially what the novel is. It's more of like sort of a man who essentially is um, dying of hunger and love, but pulls out all the humour. So it's quite, it's quite a funny novel as well. I don't want people to be put off by the fact that it sounds quite serious. <laughs> You started off talking about it, and I said, this sounds really hilarious. It's a terrible writer, and you know, you know, and then it gets really, really dark all of a sudden. So, 
yeah, um, Robin actually Robin actually commented on how upbeat both of the titles are of your releases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not the most uh, jolly of titles, are they? <laughs> how about um how about the other one, to Die Upon a Kiss, which sounds kind of like a James Bond title a little bit. Yeah, it does. Um, I think it's actually a line from Shakespeare. It had something to do with suicide. Um, because the, the, the main story is that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy in the story called Sadler Truman who's got this rare heart defect called um, Sudden arrhythmia death syndrome um it's affected all the male members of his family and they've all died before they've reached 30 years of age and sadler is due to sort of reach 30 in about two months time when the novel starts so he's trying to come to terms with his inevitable demise um and to help him overcome his fear of death this strange woman comes into his life called Prudence, who works at the local hospital. Who is basically a dispenser. Do you have dispensers over there? Um, um, explain, maybe. <laughs> explain, explain what it is. Uh, they is it... they kind of work at the chemist section, the pharmacy section. They distribute the medication. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. So... Far- pharmacy assistants is that what they're called, Rob? Pharmacy something. Sure. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. Why not? So she's one of those people, and she struck up a relationship with like kind of all the manic depressives and um, all the people with heart problems, and that's how they meet. But what she does is she she sort of embroils him in this uh, this game whereby they they go to all these manic depressives and uh, these old people um, and all these people with heart defects, and they go around to the house under the guise of delivering the medication, but induce overdoses in them um, so that Sadler can see the the delicateness of mortality and how maybe death isn't so severe that it's actually quite peaceful. So it's kind of like a, an existential love story with a twist, but it involves subjects like incest and euthanasia and excessive female masturbation and murder. <laughs> Now, all right, I'm going to jump ahead. We had a question that was a little bit later on, but um, I, I think this kind of fits in. And this is actually a question that I based on a, a comment that you left after we reviewed Quintessence of Dust, where you said that um, you were worried that your stories would be considered merely like body and puerile, uh, but you were happy to see that we had found uh, the deeper meaning of the stories. Um, it seems like you do kind of incorporate some, I don't want to say depraved, but you know some very serious and and I guess body and puerile elements in your in your stories. So, uh, are you expecting people to find the deeper meaning? And you know, since you 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 obviously feel like sometimes it might be a, little, a stretch for people to get there, is it more rewarding when people see the story for what it truly is? Yeah, I think as a writer, you, I don't go out there just to. I think first of all, shock. Um, I certainly don't go out just to write something that is one-dimensional. I know that a lot of my titles, people just judge it on the title, especially, you know, with, well, you know some of the titles anyway, don't you? (laughs) Um, And I suppose you can, you can look at those titles and say, yeah, this is, this is just there to shock and it's, it's pure and it is, um, you know, it's, it's quite crude, but 
I, it's because I can't handle writing about serious issues. So what I do is I wrap them up in the fantastical or the absurd and hopefully people sort of get that. They, they scratch at the veneer of the story and then get underneath the substrate and understand what's going on underneath. Which is why when you guys reviewed Quintessence of Dust, um, I really appreciate it because I think you did capture some of those feelings that I tried to sort of pull out. Um, I'm going to rephrase this next question based on some of the things you said. So can you tell us a little bit about the deeper meaning of Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters? Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I just okay. That's, we were going to transition from that question into, you know, really deeper meaning and stuff. And then there's Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters, which was our first introduction to you. Yeah. No, I can understand. I mean, people are going to look at that and think, right, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a very crass sort of story. And I suppose, I mean, I, I started off that story with no intention of ever seeing it published or see the light of day. I, um, I knew a few writers uh, through Write Club and other other people through that um, sort of arena, and I just wanted to write a story which involved those at first and had never wrote a zombie story before and there was a lot going around and they were all a bit sort of formulaic and I thought well I want to try and break break that really and because I kind of like zombie stories anyway I knew that the the kind of the zombies were the service the service sorry the surface layer and the subtext like in, say, Dawn of the Dead was about consumerism, so I wanted to sort of put that in as well, like a sort of subtext that was running in parallel. So I, I did intentionally just write it as a joke at first, but then as I was getting into it, I, I started to sort of enjoy it a bit more and started to sort of bring in elements of especially like social acceptance, um, which is something that I sort of, I've been dealing with on various other stories. Um, and I was working with um, a few gay people who who I sort of were listening to and felt quite sad about that they had to sort of essentially hide their love away because of fear of what the society would, would uh, you know, if they were walking hand in hand with their lover, what they would say, what would society perceive them. And I thought it was quite sad. So all these elements kind of came together and I, I thought, well, I'll write a story about it through, through that sort of zombie story, that zombie genre. It was about social acceptance. That was the, the, uh, the subtext. Um, and a few of the characters, I mean, I'm dragging this from memory now, but I think <laughs> Bowden, was Bowden a hermaphrodite? Someone was. Who was? Oh, yes, I think that's, I do believe that was correct. <laughs> yeah. And there was Malaz. He he was searching for love, and he was quite a crude character. Um, he would he would he would just say flippant remark, and he, he became quite he became across quite um, misogynistic as well. Quite uh, accurately, actually, quite <laughs> accurately is yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> when he finds love through, uh, is it, did he find love through Peeler? Yes. Yeah, um, he changes. And so they were all sort of seeking acceptance, either through through love or, um, you know, social acceptance, and just them placing that sort of story in the sort of 
the gay area where it took place. You just start mirroring all that kind of stuff. And that's not a very good explanation. I'm trying to draw from memory, so. <laughs> Sorry, no, guys. It. Yep, no, it's okay. Um, that's kind of the nice thing, too, is like, um, I think that people fall into kind of what you fear and, and just thinking that if there's a shocking title or uh, certain um, elements are introduced that are just kind of shocking or, or not your, the common thing you read a little bit more potentially mm -hmm. offensive or, or off-putting that there's no value in the story and um, it's the, so when we read stuff like that from you it's very refreshing to see that people can in, incorporate those types of elements in a story without it being the only thing of substance in a story yeah i mean there is elements to that story that i remember were quite uh, graphic i mean the, some of the death scenes um how they actually killed zombies um some of the play on words some of the um some of the descriptions that they used um, there were some phrases in there which were weren't very nice that could be perceived as homophobic. <laughs> um, there's a lot of play on words, and I can see that you know you can either read that story as one thing, or maybe try and dig a little bit deeper and see something else. Um, I you do that sort of narcissistic thing where you sometimes go on Amazon and read the reviews, and I kind of find it very funny that. I don't think Amazon allows the word pussy to be written <laughs> in any title. So, so whenever it pops up, they've had to sort of use asterisks and sort of stars to sort of denote that that's the word pussy. So, <laughs> we, we just put asterisks and stars over you saying it several times. Yeah. Are you going to beat, <laughs> yeah. beat no. me? No. No. That word. We, we specifically signed up for iTunes with an explicit rating so that we could say whatever we wanted to. Ah, right. <laughs> um, so I can swear then. Absolutely. Uh, one thing, all right, so one thing I wanted to talk about, and you mentioned it a little, because this story was something that started out as something you never were, you know, expected to, to publish, and that's why we're using friends' names. But we talked to Nick Corpon uh, a while back, uh, mm -hmm. because was it, Livius, was it By the Nails of the War Priest? Or no. Uh, no, it was from Stay God. Stay God. Mm -hmm. Stay God. He had... Uh, used multiple names of, of people he knew in the book and I guess um, he had taken some you know criticism for it but at the end of the day the reality is you know unless you know him you're not going to know that those are names of people he knows and so what, what's your thought on, on incorporating people like friends or acquaintances names into stories yeah I think like, I, I think it came from um Richard Thomas's novel, uh, Transubstantiate, um, he'd done sort of like a secret shout out where he'd incorporated names of people he knew. And I just thought it was quite an amusing thing to do. <laughs> so I just kind of did it. And I tried to get as many in as possible, in, especially that story. I think Nick was, um, I don't know if he was the sort of one of the, the, the police officers at the end mm -hmm. or it was the brand of gun i can't remember but, uh, <laughs> it was it was definitely he definitely featured uh gordon highland featured um calabia Cal uh, yeah calabia i forgot <laughs> <laughs> yeah i 
Oh, sorry, Caleb. But um, there may be some times behind the scenes <laughs> when the booked team uses that name for, for a certain person, yeah, too, just so yeah. you know it, it sticks with us. <laughs> yeah, I think I think as well, Bob Pastorella kind of um, went itself perfectly to a sort of Italian restaurant because <laughs> it was just a sort of pasta bit. So I think I dropped that in. Um, but yeah, it was quite fun because I, I, I've never met any of these people and I only know them through words, essentially, even though we talk, but you, you just do it through sort of, you know, threads or um, little messages. So I don't know what they're like. I don't really know them as people. So you just build this sort of image of them in your mind and I just kind of ran with it. And I think what I don't like about writers um, is them penting their imagination uh, for fear of being ridiculed. Um, I prefer it when a writer just lets himself go. So I, I didn't really do that with that story. I just, I just, I just let it go. And in the back of my head, I knew that it would never get published. I knew <laughs> no one would ever read it. So there was, I just had free rule to do whatever I wanted. But I also had emotion uh, as best I could. Um, so when I I got to the end where it finished, and I I think I, I was stumbling through um, some submissions and found May December were doing an anthology. I I don't know. Some part of me just said, "Oh, I'll just submit it, see what happens." And I didn't think they would pick it up at all because. <laughs> It was quite controversial, and I really admire him for doing it. And I, I have the utmost respect for people who take a chance like that. So I, I, I owe a lot to May December for publishing that story. You didn't get to hear this because we recorded our intro before we were on with you, but we actually kind of thank you for uh, getting us together with Todd Brown, who's become a great friend of the show. That's that's how we came across him was through through his publishing of Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters. Yeah, and and um, actually. Stepping back a little bit, it was when we first started uh, associating with Malaz, uh, he had brought it to our attention that he was a character in your story, which was going to be published through May-December. So I think he put uh, your story on our radar, and your story then put May-December on our radar. So it's a mm. whole big domino effect of people talking about stuff. Yeah, it's like a sort of genealogy of, uh, of <laughs> great work, isn't it? It's kind of... <laughs> All centered yeah. around zombie pussy eaters. Yeah. Well, I don't think that story was, was going to be the catalyst for that. <laughs> <laughs> so you obviously have a lot of American readers. Do you ever find that the differences and the kind of nuances between the two versions of English cause misunderstandings or that certain terms are, are, are lost on, on us over here in the United States? Yeah, occasionally somebody will fire something back saying, I don't know what a torch is. Torch. That's one of the ones I had to get so used to is... Uh... It's a lighter, like a cigarette lighter, right? Uh, no. No? <laughs> See? The way we, yeah. <laughs> the way we refer to torches are as... Um, oh, flashlights. Flashlight, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's right. Yeah. So, we, yeah, I get a lot of that sort of, um, sort of local vernacular, which sort of doesn't cross over very well. Well, you have your own side of it with uh, um, your work with Menacing Hedge, which is something that's more recent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that I, I I don't know where it's located. Is that an American based? I mean, it's just it's just an online uh, magazine, right? But is it uh, where where are they based out of? 
Seattle. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's in America, right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> barely, just barely. They're like right on the ocean. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, how, how's that working for you and what do you do over there? Uh, fiction editor at the moment. Uh, it came it came by surprise, really, that whole job. I'd, um, I submitted a, a story called Human Tenderloin to Medicine Hedge uh, probably about a year and a half ago, maybe longer, which was about um, fine dining for cannibals. <laughs> And uh, um, the editor-in-chief there, Kelly Boyker, she she really liked it and published it. And I think they were in their infancy then. They were kind of like a little fledgling sort of magazine. And um, I, but I really liked what they were doing. They kind of they had something a little bit different than most journals because other than the actual printing of the story, they were doing sort of spoken word that ran in parallel with it. And they have a subsection called Scary Bush where you submit things which you're quite embarrassed about. You know, like maybe a poem or that you gave a lover some, some, some many years ago or an old Valentine's card or whatever it is, and there's a poem in there. Anything that you're really sort of embarrassed about, you would submit. And I kind of thought it was quite fun um, uh, and quite interesting and, and different from many others. So I submitted through them. She loved it. She published it. And then I didn't hear anything for a while. Then I was thinking, I wrote a story that was almost bordering on a novella called Sicko, which was, have you, have you guys seen Dog Soldiers? No. No. Mm-mm. Oh. Um, Dog Soldiers is about, uh, it's, a, it's a werewolf sort of um, a film. It's set in Scotland, I think. Um but basically, the story is that uh, these werewolves are sort of um, attacking this cottage at the end of the movie, um, where holed up in this cottage are some soldiers, essentially. So I quite, I kind of like that movie. I like it when these films or stories are quite um, isolated. They're not too big. It's all in sort of one area. So I had this idea whereby um, taking it from that, that story, there was a stag do. You guys have stag do. It's bachelor parties, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh, our equivalent is they're called stag do's. Uh, so these guys are going on a stag do and they're supposed to be going hunting stag, ironically. Enough. Mm-hmm. And they get lost and they stay at a sort of quaint B&B, which is a bed and breakfast. And um, they get sort of mobbed by mutant deer at the end, so they're kind of like these mutant deer sort of breaking in, trying to kill them. And I wrote this story, and, I, and the intention was to sort of self-publish on Kindle for like a couple of quid. And hopefully, you know, people might quite like it. And I, and I felt that, it was, I think it was like 10,000 words or something, that it needed something else on the end. So I was thinking, well, I'll just drop human tenderloin on there. So I approached Kelly about it, saying, look, you know, it's okay to use human tenderloin and she said yeah 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 it's fine yeah, don't worry about it and then literally within a week of sending that email she came back to me and said look would you be interested in being the fiction editor of the magazine nice and I well yeah I, I, I thought she sent copied me in on an email to somebody else I didn't <laughs> she me. so I kind of sent one back saying I think you've copied me in I think you've, you've sent this email off to somebody and you've copied me in by it 
back to them. She went, no, 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 we really want you to be part of it. So I didn't know whether or not I could commit to the time because I didn't know what what was needed of an editor. I didn't know what the process was, how big the slush pile would be, you know, how much commitment that would take. So we agreed that I would be guest editor for the for one edition, which was the fall edition. And then based based on that, I would then uh, I would time management. I would know whether or not I could do it. So I um, realized after fall edition, yeah, I could do it. So I agreed to be a full time editor. And I don't want to gloss over all of that because that's pretty fantastic. And and I've liked the stuff that I've read from over there. But can we go back to the whole bachelor party thing really quick? Because I think I accidentally bumped onto some etymology that uh, of because we call you know when you're about to get married bachelor parties. Now yeah. I've heard people call it like a stag stag party, mm-hmm. but in your explanation, it, people wait. Did you say people actually go hunting? No, no, okay. that, that was just coincidental. All right. no. um, a stag do generally. It's just, it's like a bachelor. Like a party. party. <laughs> yeah, we go out and we get drunk. And I we try. For a we, brief. Do you, do you do the feather and tarring? Uh, no. Now oh, you're right. just messing with us, right? No, no. <laughs> no. There, there's been times when you'll go through a city and you'll see um, some guy sort of strapped to a lamppost and he'll be um, either cling filmed. To it. Do you know what cling film is? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Cling film to it, uh, naked, um, probably feathers all over him, um, and lots of lots of things sort of sticking out. For wow. that's and you're being 100 percent serious right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. We, yeah, we try to sort of humiliate the uh, stag. All of my friends have really gotten off light. I, I should have talked to you earlier because. <laughs> I've I've gone through several bachelor parties and it was basically we were just really nice to them. Really? Yeah. They went hunting oh. for hunting for strippers. We went yeah, stripper hunting basically. Well, do you not just go to a strip joint? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of it, yeah. Get drunk, uh, look at strippers, that type of thing. Yeah, that, yeah. No, you're going you're going to raise it up a level. Yeah, now, well, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm going to have that opportunity again, but if so, I, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to consult you ahead of time just to make sure that I do it right. Yeah, do you have, um, we have something called Nair, which is, um, mm-hmm. uh, ladies use it on the their hair private. removal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's quite good on the eyebrows. <laughs> good Lord. So, uh, so when, when they're unconscious, you should, you should use that one. Wow. All right. Yeah. Now, now that we're this far off the beaten track, I have, I have another question for you. Are you excited about the royal baby? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of warming. I don't, I'm not a royalist. I'm not patriotic. Um, but I'm kind of warming to William um, and Harry. They seem more human than the Queen. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it'd be quite nice. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we got a free holiday out of it last year. When they got married, so that's always a bonus. Yeah, we got a day, day's holiday. So I don't know if you realize this or not, but you, in the United States, you can't look at a at an entertainment magazine or turn on like there's a show called Inside Edition, which is all about the entertainment industry and things that you can't turn it on without hearing about the royal family here. So I can only imagine that there, it's got to be just prevalent everywhere. Yeah, but you know, we kind of get used to it. 
the, the, the problem, the, the thing that I sort of fear more, I, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of indifferent towards the royal family anyway, but the thing I fear more is that, um, that you know, because Diana was kind of plagued by paparazzi, mm-hmm. that the same will happen for them. And I think that people, regardless of, you know, who you are, what you do, you should have a bit of privacy. Did you did you hear about what happened recently in the UK where um, that prank phone call? Yeah, yeah, I heard about hear? that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's that's terrible. And that this this poor nurse who obviously took the call um, subsequently committed suicide because uh, you know because of, of, of the ramifications of that. And this is just this is not actually you know the media encroaching on. On the actual royal couple, it's it's media sort of affecting other people. Mm-hmm. So oh, that kind of worries me. But I I, I do like it, you know. Um, to somebody on television recently, they were talking about how they were in a pub in London, and uh, Prince William and Prince Harry walks in, and they've got like sort of an entourage of minders and everything else, and they're drinking in this local pub, which I first of all is quite refreshing, and then. In the sort of distance, they hear Prince William shout, "I'm going to do the crab," and then just sort of like flips on his back, <laughs> and starts doing this sort of Linda Blair type crab thing <laughs> through the pub. I mean, how many royals would do that? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, yeah, I kind of, I kind of like them. Yeah, they're a bit more down to earth. They're more human than most. Well, and that might lend them a little bit of relief maybe yeah well yeah i think that you know if you the the more you try to keep your life secret the more the media is likely to want bits of you but yeah if you're if you're laying on your black back flailing in a in a pub Mm. you know it's interesting the first couple times after that you know if you're just out in the open i think that it maybe loses its appeal a little bit to the paparazzi yeah yeah yeah, Livius, did you know what he was talking about? That uh, no idea whatsoever. Right. So essentially, uh, uh, when um, oh, I don't know the names. I'm sorry, but she was in the hospital, um, mm. uh, and someone there was like a D, like radio DJs from it was either Australia, or New Zealand called up, pretending to be the Queen, wanting this talk, you know, and and uh, the phone call kind of made it through and everything, and I guess kind of made it through, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, 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 it went, yeah, it went through. But yeah. anyway, it came, it came out later that it was a prank and it wasn't really the queen, obviously. And um, there was, I mean, I, I guess enough of a scandal around it that this nurse um, kill, killed herself. Mm. And so, like, it was like, obviously, these radio DJs weren't trying to make someone kill themselves, but it was just kind of an insensitive and you know, kind of dumb thing to do. And terrible yeah. things happened from it. Yeah, I mean, they were just trying to get more information on Kate and. Then uh, they didn't think. I suppose it's just a, one of these crank calls that just went awry, um, but somebody died out of it, which was quite sad. It's terrible. Yeah, terrible, mm. terrible. So we're gonna cross that off the list of things we're doing in our year in review episode. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. No. <laughs> uh, all right, kind of back on track after that whole royal baby talk. Uh, what what are you currently working on, or what can we expect to see from you next? Besides, obviously, you have the two author, uh, uh, books that are, are are scheduled to come out. I'm working on uh, something that I've been working on for a while now. It's called Dog Mile. I don't know. It's really difficult to explain, but it's quite epic in its scope. It's about a small rural village. Uh, it's a fictitious village in 
Yorkshire, which is where I'm from. Well, not from, but I'm currently living. And it starts in 1805 and moves all the way to present day. But what happens is in this sort of village, um, time is of no consequence. There's a, there's a place called Blackbriar Woods where somebody from, for example, 1845 can walk in there and they can sort of bump into somebody from 1935. And what you have is, um, it sort of stems from folklore, is this creature living in the woods. Um, it's perceived as a monster. It's been taking these children from the bed at night. Um, so what they've done is they've hired two hunters to go in and sort of slay this, uh, this, this, this beast or whatever it is, this, this, this monster. But what happens is uh, who hires them is, is, is the devil and you start to sort of bring in elements of uh, this sort of Christ-like figure and the devil and good and bad and evil and how it all sort of merges and explodes within this sort of small area. So I, I, it's really difficult to explain, but yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty bizarre, but it's probably the most ambitious project I've ever undertook. And it's... So that's what I kept thinking is it sounds very, very ambitious to, to pile on all those different elements. Sounds very cool, though. Yeah, the, the timeline is really difficult because it's not. It's also as well, it's not just um, third person. What, what you've got is each chapter is essentially a short, a short story. So like Knock 'em Stiff, you know, where you had everything sort of set in one particular area. But they were all sort of individual stories that kind of interconnected in some way. Um, it's similar to that. So you've got uh, first person, third person. You've also got journal diaries. So the timeline has to fit within certain historical moments as well, like uh, the Irish famine, because there's people migrating from Ireland that moved to this particular area. Um, you've also, I had to study and learn all about medicine in the early 1900s and what was possible and what wasn't and so I had to learn all about that and put that into it because there's a doctor who gets involved in it so it and the language is totally different as well because you you know it has to be of that sort of era you just couldn't write in a normal sort of modern day dialect because it wouldn't just sort of fit but then you've got all these other different lives that are coming into it um, that are from the future that are sort of meeting people from the past so and there, I I, I kind of liked. I think the the sort of catalyst for it was that I I kind of liked Jaws, you know the movie, mm -hmm. whereby you had these three chaps just going out searching for this, which is the old mm -hmm. Moby Dick thing, isn't it? You know where they're searching for this uh, this beast, but it's more about what they're going through. It's their stories really, you know, and it's and it's that really. You've got all these different characters and it's their stories, uh, but you've also got this, you know good and evil battle that's going on as well so that's it is it's it sort of I've said it before in uh, even in Twitter feeds or uh, just correspondence with people but it's, it's slowly killing me <laughs> <laughs> to put it bluntly 
that that does sound very very interesting so it's uh it's by a bunch of knock them stiff because that was the first book i read of its kind where it was short stories that were intertwined and when that's mm. done well it's really really just a, a brilliant way to to tell numerous stories within the scope of you know one larger story so it's very cool to see that more people are, are doing that type of thing yeah i uh, i tend to, i wrote two novels now and i kind of feel comfortable more around the short story um I'm, i guess i'm i'm all serve and no game um, <laughs> so i tend to sort of prefer these you know short bursts of creativity and this was the the only way i could construct something so epically i couldn't just sort of go into it saying right well this is just a novel and it's going to be third person all the way through it would be just too ambitious and it just sort of melt in the head so what i said was what i do is i create short stories and have them sort of running in parallel or together or one person from one short story would sort of interact with another person from another short story and what and that's how it set out and what i did was i i wrote a few and then subsequently decided that they wouldn't fit the narrative and discarded them and then sent them out to be published or with the hope of getting published and they did so these kind of stories out there already that are uh, set in the fictitious rural village called dogmal um, and you can find them online so these kind of it's kind of already out there what will come to fruition in the actual uh, the, the finished novel I'm writing there. All right, to get a little bit back more to the immediate future. So we, for a long time, have mentioned that we're very much looking forward to a more full-length work from you. So mm. we have we have uh, carved out a slot in January to review one of your books. Now, this, I think this is the first time we've ever done this. We're going to put you on the spot and have you pick for us between your two releases which one we review here on the show. Would well, you want female masturbation, or do you want writer living in Doesn't doesn't everybody? <laughs> I'm kidding. Whichever one you think, um, whichever one you would like. So we're gonna give you the pick. Yeah, we carved out a, a slot in January. It's been there now for like three months on our calendar. It just says Craig Wallwork book. Oh, that's very nice. I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I don't know. I I, I kind of find that um, American or America is quite curious to the sort of English customs and things like that. So maybe um, the sound of loneliness. There we go. Done. Um, yeah, I know I'm, I'm kind of depriving female masturbation there, but sorry. Oh, you know, we can read it. We can read the other yeah. one. We're just, it's just this one that you're, we're going to talk about on the episode. So <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we'll get to see it. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> Before we sign you off, is there anything else you'd like to uh, plug or pimp or exploit uh, tonight? No, I just, I mean, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to January to see the releases of the novels. I'm obviously the continuous work with Menacing Hedge and seeing where that goes. Oh, I can give you an exclusive for Menacing, Menacing Hedge if you want. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, this is not public knowledge yet. So uh, the winter edition will feature works from Stephen Graham Jones, um, Amy Bender, and Amelia Gray. Wow. And our spring edition will be edited by booked favorite and regular Amanda Gowen. Ah, very nice, very nice. We love Amanda, she's the best. 
Oh, she's beautiful, Amanda. Yeah. She's, uh, I've, I've become very close to Amanda through email and various correspondence. And she, she amazes me sometimes with um, the way she can write stories. I mean, I love, she just kind of effortlessly goes through this process of delivering her life in piecemeal. And I just kind of get absorbed in her words through the correspondence. And I keep telling her to write it and put it into a book. And she keeps sort of sidestepping it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm desperately trying to get her to write something about her life. And she's, she's kind of, uh, if I think if I just keep sort of banging on that door, she'll eventually sort of acquiesce and sort of give in and say, okay, here it is. Probably that book will include some llamas. Yeah, and false penises. <laughs> mm. Oh, and um, X-Files and... Um, <laughs> what's it? Is it Tom Hardy? Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Tom Hardy, for sure. <laughs> All right, Craig, where can people find more about you online? Uh, blog. I think if you just Google me, I think the blog will come up straight away. Uh, I don't... I'm not really into the sort of the whoring aspect of publishing. So, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that do it really well. Um, which I, I, I know I'm sort of slightly deviating from what you're asking there, but I often, I often find that there's some people who can sell themselves and the books very, very well. And then they've hoodwinked me into believing that it's a good book and I've read the book and it's crap. <laughs> do you find that yes <laughs> yes yes yeah, yeah. and I, I find that the most frustrating thing because i've been to readings and i've i've read things online and i thought god this is going to be great and then i read the book and there's just nothing there so i don't i i can't i don't know whether or not it's just something inbuilt but i i can't sell myself so those sort of synopsis that at the beginning of the the interview today i, I know they probably sounded crap but um, hopefully the book's actually a lot better than the way I described them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, you can find me, uh, you can find my blog. I think uh, I've got a Facebook page as well. Um, Twitter, I'm on there. So, yeah, if you, any of those sort of social networking aspects. I use Twitter quite a lot. Yeah, you are. You're definitely more active, I think, on Twitter. Um mm. Well, hey, uh, we want to thank you so much for taking some time to uh, to come on and talk to us. It's been it's been way too long, so I'm glad we finally got this to happen. No, thank you. Uh, I really I love you. What you're doing as well, you know, you guys are really you you, you create something that's really unique, and uh, I really like listening to it, and especially the amount of time that you put into the writers that I know and love um, as well. So. Thank you. All right, another big thanks to Craig Wallwork. It was awesome. He was—he was everything we expected. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 in doing these three interviews, it occurred to me that my favorite part now, actually, of doing interviews is when we ask uh, authors what's coming up, because um, we get to hear all these awesome things that people are working on, and then we know, you know, down the road we're going to see it. So we get a kind of a sneak preview of all the cool stuff that's coming up that we know we're going to be looking at later on. Yeah, that whole premise sounds so crazy, doesn't it? It's just, yeah, that oh, yeah. the epic. Yep. The wall work epic. 
Awesome. Very much looking forward to. He went ahead and picked a book for us. See, here's here's what we did. You know, we tricked him right into like we didn't have, we had to make a decision. It's like when we ask people for music for the episodes, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, it's so cool that you're going to let me do this. No, it's just so we don't have to. So The Sound of Loneliness <laughs> will be coming up um, next month. And uh, you can get more about Craig Wallwork all over the place, apparently. Yeah, we'll drop some links to his blog and, and everything in the in the post for this uh, post for this episode. All right, so that was uh, uh, for anybody who's still listening. Um, thank you for uh, for listening for this long. This episode went a little longer than most, um, based mostly on the fact that we had three guests. But um, we had also kind of put a time limit on how long we were going to do for everybody. But everything you hear is is very very worth hearing. So yes, this is going to run longer than we anticipated. Um, but it's just because of the sheer quality of our guests. If you think about it, it has run longer than we anticipated because they already listened to all this stuff. You know huh? like, no, like by the time they're listening to this, hmm? it already has run longer than we anticipated because That's they true. listened to all three of those people. Thank you for uh, still listening, both of you. <laughs> uh, what do we got coming up next week? Uh, next week, we are going to have a Christmas special. Hey. Yay. <laughs> so not uh, that long ago, um, we had S.G. Brown on. And he talked a little bit about his uh, novella, which is a follow-up to um, to Breathers, which is something I read and loved um, a few years ago when it first came out. So next week, I saw zombies eating Santa Claus. And uh, you know what? Everybody really enjoyed your, your what you were thankful for on Thanksgiving. Maybe Rob can do a, a Christmas soliloquy again on, on things that... Uh, <laughs> that he feels around the holidays. I don't know. <laughs> so, I could I could feel the sarcasm in that. I, I tried so hard to keep it out of there and, yeah. and try to sound really genuine. But if you could talk about your shoes and stuff, that would be great. I am just going to gush about my new phone eventually. I'm sure of it. There we go. So until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.